I was in that interrogation room for about 12 hours the first day. I professed them I was not there, I don't know, but they were insistent that I knew and I was going to tell them. If not, I was going to get the death penalty. They showed me a picture of death row. One of them got my arm and he, with his finger, he tapped me on the vein. This is where the needle's going to go. And he said, if you don't cooperate, you know, that's what they're going to do to you. You're going to wind up and he, I mean, he was just relentless. This is For Life, the podcast from Sony Pictures Television and ABC. Hi, I'm your host, Isaac Wright Jr. In America, it is estimated that there are thousands of wrongful convictions each year. Thousands more are overcharged and oversentenced. In 1991, I was one of the thousands of people wrongfully convicted of a crime. I was sentenced to life in prison and unfortunately had no hope for freedom and no one to fight for me other than myself. I taught myself the law, and as a paralegal, I was able to help some of my fellow inmates get reduced sentences and released from wrongful convictions while seeking my own justice. After eventually getting my own conviction overturned, I became a lawyer, and I've continued to be an advocate for those in need. My story also inspired the new fictional drama series For Life on ABC. But there are so many others with stories like mine. In this six-part series, we're hearing real-life, first-person accounts of other wrongfully convicted men and women who, against all odds, prevailed, were exonerated, and emerged from their unthinkable adversity with grace and purpose. These are stories of tenacity, faith, friendship, transformation, compassion, and family. Christopher Ochoa grew up in a Mexican-American family in El Paso, Texas. In 1988, he was 22 years old, living in Austin. A former high school honor student, Chris was saving for college by working at a pizza restaurant. He had no idea a tragic crime and a miscarriage of justice would tear his life apart. The compassion of others, especially his family, carried Chris through his darkest years of wrongful incarceration but it was Chris's own compassion that guided his path once he became free. This is Chris's story. I grew up in El Paso, Texas. We were a really close family. I was really close to my grandfather and my mom's dad. And then I had an uncle, my mom's baby brother. He's always been kind of like older brother that I didn't have. I played a lot of baseball. In high school, I liked poetry. I was the assistant editor of the literary magazine. I was very quiet, very shy. Back when I was 22, I left El Paso, my hometown. I was living in Austin, Texas, and I, I loved to go to rock concerts, Hair Nation and all that. That's what they call it now, but I was just a typical 22-year-old trying to find his way around the world. I started looking into going to college because I wanted to go to school. I was going to register in spring of 89, but I never got to do that. I was arrested a couple of months before. At the time of Chris's arrest, he and his roommate, 18-year-old Richard Danziger, worked together at a pizza place that had several locations in Austin. In October of 1988, 
a young woman was brutally raped and murdered while working alone at one of these other locations. In the days that followed, Chris and Richard went to eat at the same location where the victim worked. During their meal, they raised a toast in her honor, a gesture at least one of the employees found suspicious. Apparently, the law enforcement had already told the employees and the security guard, whoever did the crime might come back, be on the lookout for anybody suspicious. So now here comes me and my roommate has raised a toast, right? I'm uncomfortable, I wanna go home. So I tell my roommate, let's go home. We're walking out, I remember he stopped and talked to the security guard. He asked him some questions about the crime scene. That was enough for the security guard to call law enforcement. They tracked us down. That's how we became suspects. A couple of days after I was preparing the pizza dough and all that stuff for the day, and all of a sudden they called me to the front and it's two detectives. And they said they wanted to ask me questions about a burglary. I had never been in trouble and just, I was like, okay. I was already a suspect, I didn't know it. I hop in a car with the detectives and I go to the police station and shortly after that, they take me to what, what now I know is the interrogation room. I, I was in that interrogation room for about 12 hours the first day on Friday. I told them from the get-go, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know who did it. If I knew who did it, I would help you. I didn't do this. I professed them. I was not there. I don't know. But they were insistent that I knew, and I was going to tell them. If not, I was going to get the death penalty. They showed me a picture of death row. One of them got my arm, and he, with his finger, he tapped on me on the vein. This is where the needle's going to go. And he said, if you don't cooperate, you know, that's what they're going to do to you. You're going to wind up and he, I mean, he was just relentless. Hours and hours, and then I even asked for an attorney. They said, I couldn't have one. You can't have one till you're officially charged. Well, that was the first violation of my rights. They wanted me to say that my roommate had done it and he came and told me. Richard did it. He came and told you. And now you, you need to tell us because that's what makes you an accomplice. They wore me down. I said, well, can I go home now? And they said, no. Now we want you to give some samples, hair samples, and to make sure that you weren't at the crime scene. And I did. Then they take me to a hotel on a Friday night. And I couldn't see anybody. They said, don't talk to anybody. I guess they tapped the phones. I don't know what happened, but I had called my roommate when I was in a in the hotel, and I said, I, you know, I think I'm going to need an attorney. And Monday came, and the cops said, you called your roommate for an attorney. Only guilty people ask for attorneys. The police took Chris in for further interrogation. He was intimidated, scared, and convinced that he'd only avoid the death penalty if he confessed. Chris felt he had no choice but to sign a statement concocted by police. I would play the guessing game or they would lead me out. Didn't you see this item? And I would say, oh yeah, I saw it. And then they would start the tape and I would repeat the fact. At some point, they stopped the tape and, and, and one of the detectives got off his chair and threw it right out of my head. And at that point, the other detective said, you know what, we're not gonna tape this. We'll just uh, type it. So uh, here he types this uh, statement that was fed to me by them. 
I signed a statement. I didn't confess. You know, I just didn't see, I didn't see any way out. I felt like I couldn't leave. So I was like, what do I do? How do I end this? It was torture. It's not normal. When you go through a situation like that, you panic. Chris's coerced confession stated that his roommate Richard shot the victim and both of them raped her. Both men were arrested. Chris's family found out from the local news. I had no phone call. The way my mom found out was, you know, once I was arrested, then my name came out in the media. I had an uncle saw my name in the media, and he called my mom immediately. And then eventually she came to see me at the jail. My mom was crying and told her I didn't do this, Mom. I told her everything. She didn't know what to do. She was beside herself. My name is Dora Ochoa. Chris told me, said, Mom, I didn't do this thing. They're blaming me. They, they made me, they forced me to find the, that confession. I told him, I know you. I know you could have done it. You, you, we don't have money to go to lawyer for you. Chris was assigned court-appointed attorneys who insisted a guilty plea was his best chance to avoid death row. His lawyers based their counsel on the results of inconclusive DNA testing. At the time, DNA was a new science that was not nearly as advanced as it is today. Back then, DNA tests were not able to exclude Chris or Richard conclusively from the crime scene. My attorney was trying to get me to plead guilty. I said, look, I didn't do this. I know what the statement says, but I'm innocent. My court-appointed attorneys were calling my mom. You need to get your son to plead guilty or he's going to die on a death row. You're going to lose a son. You're going to kill him. Imagine how my mom felt. My mom knew, hey, she grew up in the 60s. So that's when she started saying, hey, they're going to kill you. Even though you didn't do it, they're going to kill you. She kind of knew that, hey, you're brown, and you're facing white, a all-white jury. You're, I was pretty much, you know, history. They blame this on him because he's a Mexican. They don't know who to blame, and they won't just want to close the case. The lawyer said, that's the best deal he can get. Be out in seven years. And we didn't believe him. I was working for 26 years, and I had to quit my job because of what happened to him. Chris's ordeal took a serious toll on his mother's health, and she was hospitalized with a possible stroke. His grandmother called him in jail to tell him. I hung up the phone, and I went to my cell. And that's when I had to make... Uh, the hardest decision I've ever had to make. I knew I was innocent. My mom was getting sick. And I didn't want her to die. With tears in my eyes, I made a decision. I'm going to have to plead guilty. Initially, Chris's plea bargain required that he plead guilty to rape and testify against his former roommate. 
but then the police had him take a polygraph test. Prosecutors used the mixed results from the test to pressure Chris into pleading guilty to first-degree murder. When they asked me if I was a shooter and I said yes, I registered deception. When I said no, I registered deception. So when that happened, the prosecutors insisted, you don't get the deal. So I had to say that I was a shooter. The, the DAs coached me. They told me everything that I was going to answer and everything we were going to ask. And then they coached me on how to answer the defense attorney when I was cross-examined. When I had to testify against Richard, I was scared. Uh, I had that death penalty hanging over me still. When I was on the stand, um, Richard was sitting at the defendant's table, and he just was giving me a really dirty look, and I don't blame him. Richard Danziger was convicted of rape and sentenced to life in prison. According to the plea bargain, his conviction meant that Chris would avoid the death penalty. Christopher Ochoa was sentenced to life in prison for first-degree murder, the charge he pled guilty to. Chris and Richard were sent to different prisons for the crimes they didn't commit. Shortly after, then I was taken before the judge so that he can sentence me. And I was, uh, I was all alone. None of my family was there. And I, I was okay with it. I didn't want them to see me sentenced to life. They put me in a cell by myself. The cell door just clanks like, I mean, just metal to metal, just sounds loud. I sat on my bunk. And at that time, I, uh, it was the loneliest feeling in the world. I didn't know what I had done. I was just like, why did they hate me so much out there? I didn't do anything. I wrote an eight-page letter to Mom, I'm scared. I had to let my tears flow. The first couple of years, I, um, I didn't cry anymore. I had to make myself strong because I couldn't let people see me weak. Compassion Chris receives from others and the compassion he finds for himself helps him cope with the trauma of his false confession and wrongful incarceration. The theme of compassion can also be found in Sony and ABC's fictional drama series, For Life. Here is executive producer Hank Steinberg speaking about how it plays an important role in the series. Aaron has to figure out how to keep his compassion and his humanity in prison which is a dehumanizing system by its very structure. How can I have compassion for other inmates? And we see him struggle with that in the course of the show when he takes cases for other inmates where he needs to use their cases to help him. And what happens if um, what's best for his client is not what's best for him or vice versa. Be sure to watch Sony Pictures Television and ABC's drama series, For Life, Tuesdays at 10, 9 central on ABC. Now, 
back to Chris's story. Chris did not adjust well to prison life. An older prisoner took notice and offered some advice. He was a lieutenant in a, in a gang and said, you're an honest kid. You're not trying to be something you're not. Go to school. And because and, maybe someday you'll get out and you'll be ready. I had already had that in my mind, but him encouraged me to go to school, right? And then he said, the one thing you got to do is you mind your own business. You see something, you, they ask you, you see nothing. You saw it, but you didn't see it. Chris took the man's words to heart and began using the prison's educational resources. But his studies could not numb his emotional pain. Chris's family also suffered. It, it destroys family. It destroyed my family. It, you know, I, my, my mom, she was always stressed about me in prison. I had a cousin that I was really close to. She was like a year younger than me. I would write her once in a while from prison, and she would never write me back. My uncle, her dad, passed away, and I sent her a condolence card, and she didn't write me back. What I found out years later, she was scared of me. My family would go visit me. They would try to go once a year, if they could, or maybe twice. But my family lived in El Paso, Texas. I was in a in a prison on on the East Texas border, so it was pretty far. But I would look forward to the visits because I got to see my grandpa, my grandma, my dad, my mom. One thing that was always my constant was my uncle Ron. I'm Ron Avejas, Chris's uncle. My first impression when I saw him through that glass, I saw this lost kid boy. I saw it in his eyes, he looked lost. Every time I went to see, I would visit Chris, I told myself I would not break down. I would be strong for him. We thought we were in a, in a nightmare. I said, this can't be happening. It's not Chris, that's not Chris. Chris wouldn't hurt a fly, I know that's an old cliche, but it's the truth, he wouldn't, there's no way. This is not him. My parents, his grandparents were very devastated. It was very devastating for all of us. Chris's family visits, as infrequent as they were, helped ease the loneliness of his incarceration. But around the time Chris turned 30, he hit his lowest point. As he faced yet another holiday season away from home, the reality of what his life had become was too much to bear. His Uncle Ron remembers that painful time. The hardest moment of Chris's incarceration was one Christmas. It was the Christmas, I believe, about two years before he got released. He wrote me a letter, uh, and he was giving up. I didn't have what my friends had. I wasn't married. I didn't have a beautiful wife. I didn't have kids. I didn't have a car. I didn't have... The American dream was gone for me, I thought. My family went on with their lives as, as they should have. I felt that nobody in the world loved me anymore. I felt that. I just told my buddy, I said, look, I, I don't know if I'm going to get a Christmas card. You know, and he, he looked at me and said, you'll get one, just wait. And it was the 24th of December. I didn't get a Christmas card from anybody. 
and I went back to my cell. And I was um, just crying. And I was feeling this pain. I didn't want to feel it anymore. So I, I took a razor blade and I broke it open and I put it on my arm and I was going to run it up the vein, not across. Because I knew a cross is just a cry for help. And if I run it up, they won't get to me on time. I had the razor blade to my skin. I was raised Catholic, and I remember the nuns. They had told us that we didn't have the right to take anybody's life, not even our own, because God gave us our life. So when I, I remembered those words, I took the blade and I flushed it down the, to down the toilet. And somehow I got to Christmas Eve and I made it. He wrote me a letter that he hadn't received any Christmas cards that year and he was giving up. He wrote to me and told me, I'm going to take my life. Sorry, um, I was, um, my hands were tied. I was, I didn't know how to reach out to him. I couldn't call him, so I just wrote him another letter and pleaded to him not to take his life, that we're still here for him. And it, all those letters and all those Christmas cards that he was expecting that he did not get, he got them like two weeks later. They were, they were held up in the mail somewhere, but he did get them. When you're in prison, you crave any connection to the outside world. Holidays and other milestones are particularly hard. Those cards and letters, those signs of compassion from your loved ones, they really do help you get through it. Fortunately, Chris did eventually receive those Christmas cards and letters from his family. Those correspondences, along with his new focus on his education, helped shift Chris's outlook. After that, I just somehow found strength. And I said, this is my life. I'm going to die in here. So I might as well make the best of it. Chris did just that. While in prison, he earned two associate's degrees. Then, in early 1998, there was a break in Chris's case. In another Texas prison, convicted felon Akeem Joseph Marino underwent a religious conversion, which compelled him to write letters to authorities confessing that he alone raped and murdered the female victim in Chris and Richard's case. Detectives launched a reinvestigation and went to speak with Chris in prison. Their questions made him suspicious. He worried they may have had an ulterior motive. Chris ended the jailhouse meeting by reconfirming his guilt. Cops don't come see you for the same crime. They come see you for others, right? And in my mind, I said, these guys are hiding something. But they started playing a good cop, bad cop routine. They showed me a lineup, and I just ended the interview. I wanted to throw them off. But as soon as I ended the interview, it was a buddy of mine that was going home on parole. He got released, and he got in call of New York Innocence Project. 
and he told them my story. They didn't take my case, but they sent my buddy a list of Innocence Projects. And I circled the Wisconsin Innocence Project. Don't know why, just circled it. I wrote them an, an eight-page, nine-page letter. They called me, and they started investigating the case. And then they found a lot of, they found all that evidence that pointed away from me. My attorney said, look, you know, this could always go south because you're clearly innocent, but there's cases where it doesn't matter. You know what I mean? So they kept me grounded one day at a time. There's new testing mechanisms. There's more advanced DNA. They ran the DNA test. They cleared me, cleared Danziger. About a year and a half after Chris reached out to the Wisconsin Innocence Project, he was released. He had spent just over 12 years behind bars. Richard Danziger was not as fortunate. He was violently attacked by another inmate and suffered permanent brain damage. Although upset by what happened to Richard, Chris blames the broken system that put two innocent men in prison. I was the victim. Just like Danziger, we were victims of the police department. When my Innocence Project lawyer uh, told me I was going to be released, it's hard to describe what I felt, but I know it was felt like bricks coming off my shoulders. Is this actually happening? You know, but it was actually happening. I was really happy. It was on a Monday morning. Um, they didn't have bananas in prison, so that was a treat for me to eat a banana that morning. As they walked me to the to the courtroom, I remember they sit down with my attorney, and he notices I don't have a belt. He took the belt he was wearing with his suit. I still have the belt. Burgundy it was a loop, like a braided belt. And he put it on, he put it on so you can look presentable. And then they walked me to the courtroom. Uh, I was still in shackles up until I walked into the courtroom and they took off everything. The initial prosecutor that actually put me in prison was sitting in the jury box. She just gave me a really dirty look. And it just gave me the chills, just same look I had from the detectives when this whole thing started for me. The DAs present the evidence, and my and my attorneys present the evidence, and the judge, I do remember clearly, when he looked at me and he said, Mr. Ochoa, on behalf of the state of Texas, I want to apologize to you. What happened to you was a tragedy. It was a miscarriage of justice. I went up and shook the judge's hand, and I told him thank you, because that was the judge that sentenced me in the first place. And I don't know how that worked out, but it was great. My mom was there. My uncle was there. The victim's mother was there because I became really good friends with her. When she found out I was innocent, she felt horrible. But we started writing each other. Me and her formed a bond. When I was free to leave, I froze. The bailiff had to come tell me, you don't have to ask permission, you can leave. And I walked out with my mom. She was holding my hand. She didn't want, you know, she just got her son back. 
I felt very happy and joyful that he was released and that all the people that blamed him, especially the mother of the girl, she was crying with me and she was very nice, that lady, to me. And she went and talked to me, I'm sorry you went through this and you, I'm sorry. Chris celebrated his first night of freedom at a steakhouse in Austin, but his mind was not at peace. I wanted to go home immediately the next day, but I had told my attorneys, I don't want to be in that airplane by myself. I'm scared that these cops are going to do something, they're going to plant something again, just because they're angry at me, because I made them look bad. I've had my own hotel room. I thought they left me alone in there, these cops were going to come railroad me again. That's all I could think about. But I got through the night, and when I woke up in the morning, the law students from the Innocence Project, they also worked on the case. They came to my room, and I was making my bed. And they said, what are you doing? I'm making my bed. I got to make my bed. No, no, you're not in prison anymore. So that was the first instance of freedom that started from the time of his arrest right through to his release, Chris's uncle Ron was a constant source of support. After prison, Chris moved into Ron's spare bedroom. The first day that he came to my home, we were in the kitchen, I remember vividly, asking him, you know, what do you want? What do you want to eat? What do you, do you want to go out to eat? What's... He would not look at me. He says, Ron, in prison, if we look at the guards or the warden, we get punished. So it's going to take me a while to break this habit. And that hurt. He said, this is your house. You can go, come and go as you please. You don't have to tell us. So he gave me a lot of that freedom that I needed. When I went to get glasses. I was going to get these uh, funky glasses that <laughs> they helped me pick up the styles that they didn't want me to be stuck in the 80s. <laughs> you know what I mean? So the, he helped me along. I was very distrustful of people. I, I would go to a restaurant with my uncle and I would not sit with my back to the, the door. I would always put my back to the wall. You can't give your back to anybody. You can't. But my uncle broke me out of it. After I was released, life becomes normal, I guess. But it was not an easy transition. I didn't have enough money, uh, you know, to whatever I needed for school or whatever it was. People always expected me to be angry or frustrated, but, you know, you're just happy to be free. But, you know, I went to see my grandpa after I was released, his grave. That's when it hit me. That's when my anger came out. My best friend. I, I looked at my dad and I said, I wish this detective would come see this, see me now. See what he's left me. A grave. My grandpa, I lost him. I would see police officers and I start shaking, like literally sweating. 
you know, there was times that I wanted to go back because in there you're somebody because you get institutionalized. I felt that I didn't fit in anywhere. I, I didn't feel I fit in in society, which is the biggest reason why I went to law school because I, I felt at home there. I felt that I fit in. After Chris was released, he earned his bachelor's degree. One of his professors said he should go to law school, a suggestion that surprised him. Chris enrolled at the University of Wisconsin Law School, the same school that helped to exonerate him and eventually became an attorney. The biggest fear being a defense attorney is losing a case where the guy's innocent. Defense attorneys, at the end of the day, they don't have much but that argument in front of the jury. But it was one case that stuck out in my mind. I got assigned the case by the public defender. I was a private attorney, but they will form them out to us. I call the client and I tell him, okay, I read the complaint, I read the police report. Now you tell me your side of the story because I know they're going to leave stuff out. I always let them talk. This particular client reminded me of me. The only thing he said, I'm innocent. I didn't do this. When I went in to see the DA, he was pulling out his offer sheet, you know, a little plea offer. And before he pulled it out, I told him, you need to put that back in your briefcase because we're going to trial. My client says he's innocent, and everything I see points to his innocence. I basically said, look, your law enforcement lied to you here. I pointed out, this is the lies. I told him just all the flaws. And then, look, if you really want to go to trial, let's go. But I will win this case. So he dismissed the charges right then and there. The guy was facing 14 years. I care about my clients. I hear them. To me, they're not just a number. They're not just money. They're just people. Because I know when I was in there, I didn't get that. Chris has become an outspoken advocate for criminal justice reforms that could help prevent false confessions. According to the National Registry of Exonerations, in nearly one in five exonerations in America, the innocent defendant either falsely confessed, was implicated by a false confession, or both. False confessions happen and they're gonna happen as long as we have people in the system they want to cut corners, and they're going to happen. But that's the kind of thing that I'm trying to tell lawyers and, and, and officers and congressmen. You need to ensure that the, these interrogations are videotaped from beginning to end. You need to take steps. Prosecutors need to look through the evidence as they're taught in law school. They teach us to think logically. And a lot of these things could be solved, these false confessions could be prevented. For the public, just know this. Law enforcement wants to talk to you. I'm sorry, law enforcement. But you need to get an attorney. Because those things can turn on you pretty quick. But for people to say they will never confess, you don't know what you would do under pressure. But it's not a normal thing that happens to you. So false confessions happen. And, you know, for the public to say they don't happen and it could never happen, they do. We have to fix the system. So 
that we can reduce the, those incidents. Redemption and compassion come to mind when I look at what happened and how we're all gone since then. Advocating for the wrongfully convicted. I see that not just in what happened to me, but I see that in the media. For wrongfully convicted, finally there's compassion. Compassion is how Christopher Ochoa found the strength to endure more than a decade of wrongful incarceration. Compassion is also what led Chris to work as a criminal defense attorney and as an advocate for criminal justice reform. He is dedicated to helping the public understand why innocent people confess to crimes they didn't commit. Next time on For Life the Podcast, we meet a musician whose family was everything to him and whose wrongful incarceration ripped him from his children's lives. You know, they were growing up and I couldn't watch it, I couldn't see it. But it was extremely difficult, you know, to see that. But I had to keep a smile on my face. I never wanted them to see me cry. You know, I never wanted them to know how bad I was hurting, how much it was affecting me that I was in prison and I wasn't there to protect them. For Life, the podcast is produced by Treefort. Executive producers are Lisa Ammerman and Kelly Gardner for Treefort, and Nicholas Austin and Nathan Staudinger for Sony Pictures Television. Our producer is Tana E. Seabrook, with additional production help from Jamie Tenenbaum, Tim Schauer, and June Rosen. Tom Monahan is our senior audio engineer and sound supervisor with production and editing by Jasper Leak and production assistance from Elijah Wells. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please subscribe, rate us, and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps to raise awareness and get the word out so more people can hear these powerful stories. The stories in this podcast are real. While the television series was inspired by my life, that story, including all characters, events, incidents, portrayed scenes, and dialogue, is fictitious. And be sure to watch Sony Pictures Television and ABC's drama series, For Life, Tuesdays at 10, 9 central on ABC. I'm Isaac Wright, Jr.